grab a copy of God's Word and turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 13. Matthew 7, verse 13. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Uh, my name is Johnny. I'm one of the pastors and have the joy of, of uh, preaching. Part of my job is to, is to preach and plan preaching, and uh, I'm excited about where the Lord has taken us and is taking us in the gospel of Matthew. <clears throat> So join me in reading this. We're going to cover Matthew 7, 13, all the way through verse 27, and actually bring to an end this morning the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what Jesus says. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Let's pray. God, this is your word and we're thankful for it. Like Psalm 119 says, would you open our eyes so that we might behold wondrous things from your law. Speak to us this morning. Lead us and guide us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this is coming to an end of a long sermon series we've been in through the Sermon on the Mount. The longest single piece of teaching we have from Jesus. And I think we all have to wrestle with what to do with Jesus. What to do with his words. And here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he's giving us some instruction about what we ought to do with his words. How do we respond to Jesus? That's a question that Matthew, as we will see in the, uh, over the course of the next about year, we're going to pick up different places in the Gospel of Matthew. And we'll see that that's a theme that Matthew hits on. How do people respond to Jesus? How do we respond to Jesus? How do you respond to Jesus. How, how do you respond to the real Jesus that's revealed and displayed to us here in the Gospels? So as I was thinking about how we respond to the real Jesus, I was thinking about the difficulty we sometimes have. Sometimes we like to remake Jesus. We like to accept some things he says and ignore other things he says, and I could not think about that classic movie, Talladega Nights praying around the dinner table, that dinner that she slaved over of KFC and Taco Bell and Domino's. 
And he starts praying to baby Jesus, and he says baby Jesus like three or four times, and finally she says, can you please just say grace? And, you know, he grew up, too. He didn't stay a baby. I, I like, he says, I like Christmas Jesus best, so I'm going to pray to the baby. So he <laughs> cuts right back to it, and uh, they do say shake and bake. And, and he cuts right back to it, starts praying to the baby, and Grandpa Chip he says, he was a man. He had a beard. And he says, well, I like the baby Christmas Jesus. So when you say grace, you can pray to adult Jesus or teenage Jesus or whatever Jesus you like. Cal says he likes Jesus with a tuxedo t-shirt. Says he's a little bit serious, but he's here to party. <laughs> One of the kids says, I like my Jesus to be a ninja who karate chops bad samurais. Okay. Back to Cal says he likes Jesus playing lead guitar for Leonard Skinner. And I, that's a hilarious clip in a comedy movie that uh, from the pulpit do not recommend you go see. <laughs> Talk to me in the parking lot about whether I've seen it or not. But I got to thinking about the truth behind I like baby Jesus a little better than I like adult Jesus. Or maybe we'll hit a little closer to home. I don't know if this is too quickly changing gears. I, I like New Testament God a little more than I like Old Testament God. And the hush fell over the room. I mean, that's a challenge for us at times, right? Ah, New Testament God seems a little more approachable, you know? Old Testament God, I, it's kind of hard for me to wrap my mind around. You know, some things Jesus said, I'm on board with. Brian led us this weekend. <clears throat> One of the questions we asked from Scripture was, who do you say I am? And he, he read us lots of statistics and studies about who people say Jesus is. And how different religions usually hold Jesus in a pretty high standard. Even Islam says he's the second, Farzad told us, second most important prophet. Some religions say he was a great teacher, a great moral teacher. And I, that's what a lot of people who have no religious affiliation in our country would say. He's a great teacher. If you say he's a great teacher, then you are actually wildly inconsistent because he also taught that he was God. So you can't have Jesus as great teacher without also having Jesus as God. And so I wonder if we hear some of the words Jesus has said in the Sermon on the Mount, some of the other things Jesus has said in the scriptures, when we hear his words, how do we receive them? Do we receive them as words of God? Having already made up in our mind that obedience is coming from our end, that we're ready to submit and to receive whatever it is that he says. Or do we like to remake Jesus a little bit to where he's most comfortably fits into my life? That's tempting. You know, because in America, we like our freedom with a side of religion. Religion that we can put in a box and carry with us and we can leave on the shelf if we'd like to. We have a joke in our house whenever I move Carrie's Bible. She reads her Bible every day. She loves the Bible. But whenever I pick up her Bible, as a good husband does, and I poke at my wife a little, I pick it up and I act like I'm blowing the dust off of it a little bit and give it to her, pretending like it's been sitting on the same shelf all week. But that's a lot of times how we like to embrace our Christianity. I, I like some parts of it. I like that it gives me a little bit of a moral compass. I don't like that he demands all my life. I don't like the parts where he talks about money. I like these other parts, though, because they, they fit with the things I already believe. Now, now wait a minute. As Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount, he gives us some pretty radical calls. And, and I lumped all these sections together here at the end because one of the themes that you see in all these sections is two. There's two ways 
There's two trees, there's two builders, and ultimately there's two directions of life that you can go down. One leading to destruction, or Jesus saying, I never knew you, or the great fall of a house. And the other leading to life. And Jesus draws a pretty firm line and says, there's not really more than two options here. Either you're gonna take me as the true king in all of my glory and authority, or you're gonna be building your house on the sand. You're either walking the narrow way or you're walking the wide way. Those are only two options we've got. So are, are we in an effort this morning, are we trying to remake Jesus in some image that is most compatible with our life or are we willing to take him at his words with who he says he is? Here's what I believe we see in these verses this morning. Here's our main idea. Devote yourself to the way of Jesus. Devote yourself to the way of Jesus. We're gonna see this morning that the way of Jesus is hard. The way of Jesus is an invitation to intimacy and the way of Jesus is an invitation to obedience, to action, to do something. First, the way of Jesus is hard. Verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. First, let's look at the wide way this morning. We don't have to get too complex here. It's wide, it's big, it's open, and the scriptures say it's easy. That might lead to destruction, but it's appealing. I think we could say it's the path of least resistance. We were at a cabin for our men's retreat this weekend. I heard there were hiking trails, not particularly one to go on a hike, but I think Brian and Bo went, may or may not have gotten lost, may or may not have taken them much longer than they thought. It did not sound like a wide and easy way on the hike. Up the mountain, beautiful view, back down, trying to find their way, getting lost, getting off the path. Do you know something about big, wide, easy ways? They're easily noticeable. You don't typically get lost off the path of a, wide, of a wide, easy way. Think about a highway. You don't come to a section of highway if you're traveling to Florida to the beach for vacation and come to this stretch of highway where you go, I just don't, is this the highway or is that the highway? No, no, it's, it's abundantly clear. This is a wide way that keeps moving straight ahead. If you're off hiking in the woods in Cleveland, Georgia, you might come to a path and you might say, is that cleared from footsteps or is that just cleared because of the way things grew? Does the trail go this way or this way? I'm not so sure, but the big, wide, easy way is obvious. It's cleared. It's well-worn because many have found it. It's inviting because it's the path of least resistance, which is, I think, the path we most often want to take which is where cultural sayings come from, like, find your truth, live your truth. Don't deny your own heart, just express what is in your heart. And now, expressive individualism is now a worldview in which uh, there's really no truth. The only truth is as long as you're expressing what is true to yourself, friends, that is the path of least resistance. 
That is a worldview that says, there's no way I could be wrong. So I'll just express whatever I feel and whenever I feel it. There are obvious logical problems with that. But I think in our text this morning, Jesus is warning us against that kind of way. It's a way that lines up with how we usually feel, what we want, and how we want to live. It's the way that Romans 12, 2 says is being conformed to the world. Proverbs 14, 12 says it like this. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. It's wide, it's obvious, it's easy, it's inviting, it's the path of least resistance. It's those things that we're living for that are promising life. And I had a conversation at the men's retreat uh, yesterday about what happens when you don't have an eternal perspective on your money and all of a sudden the only goal you have is to max out every 401k and an IRA and investment account you could possibly open, max it out. And we kind of had this conversation. It was like, actually, I think that's because they don't have a vision beyond their death. So the furthest vision they can have is retirement when they're not working anymore. And that's the only thing they're living for. There's a way that seems right to a man. And, and let me retire. Let me save up this money. This is the wide and easy way. Let me get more money so I can have a fun, comfortable life and do what I want to do when I want to do it. And that way leads to death. That way leads to destruction. So what is it that you're living for this morning that's promising you life? I think it could be one of kind of two big categories, especially in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. One is, is it a watered down version of the real Jesus? The kind of remaking Jesus in your own image kind of thing. Or is it some other lifestyle altogether? Because you know we're all motivated to find something that we think will satisfy us very deeply. That's why we make decisions. There are many ways to live, but only one way promises true life, and that's Jesus' invitation here. But he is warning us, the way of Jesus is hard. He pulls no punches. Think about how he began the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He gives them a warning right at the beginning. Hey, the way of following me is gonna be a way of persecution, a way of suffering, a way of difficulty, a way of challenge. And that's where he begins to describe the narrow way. If the wide way in Romans 12, 2 is being conformed to the world, the narrow way is being transformed. It is hard and difficult precisely because it requires us to change. Dia Carson says that the word hard here, we ought to read into it things like suffering and persecution and trials. And I thought of Psalm chapter two, verses one and two. Why is the narrow way so difficult? Because we're following a king who opposes every other king and authority in this world. Listen to Psalm two. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. The way of the world, if we follow the way of Jesus, we'll be swimming upstream from the way of the world. You could say the way of the world, the the wide way would be like going with the flow of the lazy river and following the narrow way of Jesus would feel like swimming against that current. And Jesus is under no illusion when he invites you to follow him. He, he, He does not want you to be under any illusion that this will be easy, that it will all come naturally. 
that you were made for this and you've got what it takes. That's never the call here. And I think we do a disservice to people who follow Jesus when we hold out Jesus and we make it seem like that. Because then they begin following Jesus and they go, I don't feel different. My life, if anything, seems like it's gotten more difficult. I must not have really accepted Jesus because I think he would have put my life together a little better. I think things would be going a little better for me right now. But if we hold out Jesus' true invitation, which says the way is narrow and hard and few find it, but it ends with life. So don't expect ease and comfort. The way of Jesus is hard. Is your faith gritty and tough enough to face the difficulties that are coming on the narrow way of Jesus? We need a gritty faith. We need a tough faith that can face the challenges that are coming our way in this life. Challenges that are both internal and external. This is hard, but it is the way of life. This is the way of Jesus, the God-man, our Savior and Lord, and he invites us on this way. So, the way of Jesus is hard, but the way of Jesus is also an invitation to intimacy. These are these two middle sections here, starting in verse 15, being aware of false prophets. Beware, I mean, it starts off with, a, with an imperative, a command, beware. This is a word of caution here. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They come to you looking like they belong. They come to you. They come to you, faith family. They come to you, church community. They come to you, spiritual community. <clears throat> and they look like they belong among you. They're coming in sheep's clothing. You would look at them and you might think on the surface, that's another sheep just like I am. They will look like they belong. They will act like they belong. But Jesus says, inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. They might look like they belong, but they will be false prophets proclaiming a message that's contrary to the true gospel that we find in God's living word. Second Peter chapter two, Nathan read this to me this morning. Second Peter chapter two, verses one and two, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality and, and because of them, the way of the truth will be blasphemed. Do you catch that verse two? Many will follow. Just like in the wide and easy way, many will find it. And Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter two that many will follow these false prophets that come. False prophets are coming, but Jesus in this section gives us a little bit of hope and a little bit of wisdom. You will know them by their fruits. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? I'll be honest, Jesus, I don't know. I'm no farmer. <laughs> Sometimes he uses things like that in a first century agrarian context, and I think, okay, I'm, gu I'm guessing the answer is going to be no here. I, I actually don't know where grapes come from. Kroger. <laughs> it could be lighthearted at Shalford. 
So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. I don't know enough about trees to look at it and tell you if it's healthy or diseased. But I do know, and I've had, uh, I've had these experiences with my dad. He knows a guy who's an arborist. There are real arborists in the world. And they can spend time with a tree in your yard and tell you if it's alive or dead. And it, I'm telling you, leaves could be green, could be dead. And that shocked me when I found that out. I had no idea. But it's hard for me, who's not an arborist at all, to tell. I can't always tell that. And I think Jesus is getting at some of that here in these two sections because on the one hand, he goes, look, you're gonna recognize them by their fruit. So so they might look like a sheep, they might talk like a sheep, they might act like a sheep, but just watch over time the fruit of their lives and you'll be able to tell where their root really is. He tells us we can know them by their fruit. Go to verse 21. And look at the way he describes the person in verse 21. This person in verses 21 to 23, they call Jesus Lord. So there's a confession that he is an authority and he is their Lord. They apparently prophesy. And they don't just prophesy. They, they speak this, these truths to the culture around them in the name of Jesus. They cast out demons in the name of Jesus. They do many mighty works in the name of Jesus. So if I'm applying the logic Jesus just laid down, if I'm looking at their fruits, I might come to the conclusion, they're not a false prophet. I'm not Jesus, I watch their fruits. Lord, Lord, prophesying, casting out demons, many mighty works, all in the name of Jesus looks good to me. Jesus ends that by saying, I will declare to them, I never knew you. I still think his previous wisdom stands. You'll know them by their fruits. It may just take all the way until judgment day to discern their fruits. And so if, as followers of Jesus, if we're only concerned with the fruit of our lives, we're gonna miss the invitation to intimacy that Jesus lays down for us. And that key to understanding why are we talking about intimacy comes at the very end of verse 23, I never knew you. So what's the difference between a false prophet, between a real sheep and just wearing sheep's clothes? What's the difference between someone who does all those works in the name of Jesus and someone who's a true follower of Jesus? You are known by Jesus. He is inviting us to follow the way of Jesus and he's not inviting us to a lifetime of stapling fruit onto a tree trying to convince ourselves and others that it really is an apple tree. Don't you see those apples on it? I also see lots of duct tape wrapped around those apples to those branches trying to pretend like those apples really grew there but actually they, I don't think they grew there. And this, I think, is a great example of what we've talked about a lot, the curated life. But it's spiritually curating our lives. We want to spiritually, at times, I think, curate our lives to where we project a certain kind of fruit to people around us. Look, I'm a Christian. Jesus, didn't I give? Didn't I show up to church? 
Didn't I serve in the kids' ministry? Didn't I bring my kids to church? At least sometimes. Jesus, didn't I do some of these things? Didn't I, t- didn't I lead a small group? Didn't I teach a Sunday school class at my old church, not at Shalford? They didn't have Sunday school. Didn't I do these religious, wasn't I active in the church? Well, I mean, I, I had a Bible, I read it. Will Jesus look and say, I never knew you? You did religious stuff. The activity was there. What you were missing is the intimacy. Don't miss that. Christ wants a personal relationship with you. He's not recruiting soldiers. He's not hiring workers. He's adopting children. And that means love and grace and fellowship and communion and time together. So please don't spiritually curate your life and fool yourself. And don't try to fool us because maybe the worst thing that can happen is you spend your whole life succeeding in that. And your whole life, maybe you really will fool yourself into thinking you're a believer. And whenever you have any doubts about the faith that you don't have, you'll tell yourself, you just gotta get a little more active in church. And maybe you really will fool yourself. And, and maybe you really will fool all of us. You can. I'm under no illusion of that. I do not think that me and the elders here have some sort of divine radar where we can snuff out every fake. We don't. We don't at all. So the reality is you could come in and lie under the radar and not have any intimacy with Jesus, have no real relationship with Jesus Christ. And you can be active and serve here. But the only person you're truly gonna be hurting is yourself. Because there will come a day at the end of your life when you will come face to face with a person you cannot fool. With a person who formed you in the womb. With a person who knew you before you were walking on this earth. You will come face to face with a person who knows you're rising and you're sitting, you're sleeping and you're waking. You will come face to face with the God of Psalm 139 who knows you. And all the masks will come off and you won't be able to fake it anymore. And he will look at you and either welcome you into his arms as a child or he will say, I never knew you. And that verse ought to be heartbreaking and a little scary and sobering and make us look inwardly and not say, what do I need to do to secure this salvation? But rather it needs to make us ask, God, do you know me? Have I opened my heart and my life to you in a way that I want to be known by you? Or am I more concerned with the religious activity of these false prophets? Now, we could spend a lot of time going a lot of directions about false prophets, false prophecy, false teachings about Jesus, and I just briefly mentioned it, but I think it's about staying true to the true gospel that we find in God's living word, and that's part of why we need a church community to watch out for that together. But even with the phrase false prophet here. I don't think Jesus' main idea is about combating false teaching. His main idea is about looking at the fruit of people's lives and determining whether or not they're true or false followers of him. 
I think that's the main thrust of the text here. Yes, he says false prophets, but he doesn't really go on to tell you about their teaching. He goes on to tell you about their lives. So I think if we focus on the false prophets versus the way they live their lives, I actually think we're majoring on a minor here in this text. So just little Bible study lesson about how I read scripture and what I think is the faithful way to read scripture is we gotta take the whole section and try to go, wait, what's the theme here? What's he talking about? And I think what he's talking about is, do these people have a healthy root or are they pretending to have fruit? And I think the key is there at the end, I never knew you. The real measure of your spiritual life is intimacy with Jesus. It's intimacy with Jesus. It's nothing else. Do you have intimacy with Jesus? Because the way of Jesus is an invitation to intimacy. Last, the way of Jesus is an invitation to be obeyed. It's an invitation to be obeyed. There's activity involved here. Listen to verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them. There's a great tension in scripture, and I've heard it said that heresy is trying to resolve tension that the Bible holds. But there's a great tension in scripture between grace and faith and works. And I really want to do a faithful job at holding that tension tight because the scripture on the one hand, and we talk about this a lot, is a, a gracious message. It is about intimacy with Jesus and being loved in all of your perfections and with how you really are in life. Don't pretend to be better than you are. Come to Jesus and he loves you exactly how you are. But the other side of that message is he also loves you too much to leave you how you are. Jesus warns against only hearing his words and never taking any action to obey them. So first, we gotta take a step back and say, whose words are we talking about? Because he says, Here's these, whoever hears these words of mine in verse 24, but I wanna draw your attention back to verse 21 for just a second. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but, so he's contrasting here, that person will not enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who will enter the kingdom of heaven is the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Make a connection here. If you do the will of the Father in heaven, you're in the kingdom. If you hear and do the words of Jesus, Jesus is making a subtle claim right here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount of his divinity. We're right back where we started. He can't just be a wise moral teacher. I think C.S. Lewis said he's either liar He's a lunatic, or he's the Lord. There's really no room for a good moral teacher because this is in his teaching. He's equating the words of his Father in heaven and his own words. And he's saying, they're the same words because I am God. So when we talk about hearing and doing the words of Jesus, we're talking about hearing the very words of God. And if we talk about hearing them and not doing them, it's as though we hear the very words of God and we leave just saying, hmm, it's nice. That was nice. I mean, that was eloquent. It's almost like he created language. Like, it was pretty neat. Like, what's for lunch? And off we go. But do we ever take a step back and just be in awe that God has spoken to us? Do you realize we couldn't know God any other way? 
Our only hope of knowing God is that he has revealed himself to us. And it's actually true in all personal relationships. The only way you can have a personal relationship is if you reveal things about yourself and someone reveals things about themselves and that is a conversation. And as that grows and you reveal things about yourself, if you don't reveal things about yourself, that means you're not willing to be known. And that we were talking about who God is yesterday in one of our small group sessions and I kind of made the joke like, hey, as guys, like we all have tried to pursue a female that did not reciprocate. And it was like, all right, well, I guess I'm not going to get to know you at all. And you moved right along because you knew that unless she would say something to you and reciprocate the conversation and how are you and had an answer to that and told you how her day was and had conversation with you, then there was going to be no relationship there. We know that on a personal level, and that's also true of God. Unless he reveals himself to us, we can't know him. And the good news is that he has revealed himself to us. He, he, he's done it in history, but he's done it to us in this Bible. This is his revelation, and he's also done it in the person of Jesus Christ, which this Bible points to. So when we read these words, we're reading the words of God. And Jesus is saying, if you want to hear the very words of God, my words, the will of my Father in heaven, and leave saying, hmm, that was nice, that's like building your house on sand. You might get the house built. It could be beautiful. But when a storm comes, the sand washes away, and great was the fall of that house is what Jesus says. Rather, Jesus is calling us to do something, to take action. And this is that tension I talked about. God did not save us to do nothing. Listen to a couple of verses. Ephesians chapter two, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So one thing to know, when Jesus is calling us to works, to action, to do his word, not just hear it, he is never telling us to earn his love. He is never telling us to earn his favor or his grace, to earn or keep our salvation, ever. Works in scripture are always an overflow of what God has done in us, and now he's doing through us. You were created in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2, 1 to 9 is all about your salvation. It starts at verse one, but you were dead. And then in verses three and four, it says, but God, being rich in mercy, has raised you and seated you with Christ. And then at the very end, Paul, like he always does so well, he says, look at this gospel, look at your salvation. You were dead in your sin and now you're alive with Christ. So therefore, at the end of this, what's the logical conclusion? You have been created, recreated in Christ for good works. Those good works are intimately tied with our salvation. Or James talks a lot about faith and works. James 1.22 says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. James 2.17 is in a much larger section that I don't want to read the whole thing and get off too much um, chasing that rabbit because he says so many wonderful things about faith and works and he talks about Abraham and he talks about Rahab and I think James 2.17 sums it up. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So if you say with your mouth, almost like the person in verse 21, Lord, Lord, 
If you say with your mouth, you have faith. And I, didn't I say, Lord, didn't I do? And notice all the works in verses 21 to 23, all of those works are external. It doesn't say anything about what they would do in their time with Jesus or how much they loved him. It's all about what they did, this external stuff. You say you have faith. Lord, Lord, you say you have faith. But if it does not have works that accompany it, that faith must be dead. You never, ever, ever see true faith without works not far behind. Because when God saves us, he's not saving us because we've worked, but he saves us in order to change us. That's Romans 12, verse two. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Be transformed, be changed. Ephesians 4 talks about growing up in maturity. That's change. That's real. Change is possible for us. And I think that's part of what Jesus is inviting us to in the Sermon on that, he's inviting us to obedience. You say, why? Why do we need to obey? Well, one, because of who he is. He's God. And two, it's a natural overflow of our salvation that we would live differently because we have a different love. We have a different identity. We have a different purpose. We have a different power. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. We are invited to the way of Jesus where we will experience real change in our lives by putting his words into practice. And I was thinking, what does it mean to act by faith? And I was thinking, what does it mean to act in faith? Now, I might be getting too much in the weeds here on these two words, by and in. But if I act in faith, I think I'm acting out of an overflow of how much faith I have. Like, I'm so confident that this is the right thing to do, and so I'm going to do it. And really, my mind, my emotions, my affections, my will are all aligned with going and doing it. I'm acting in faith. If I act by faith, here's how I've thought about this. I don't feel like doing this at all. This sounds crazy. This Sermon on the Mount deal, I don't know. I, I'm just not sure that, that all these things fit into my life. I don't know that I can pray. I certainly don't know if I can fast. You want me to give? You want me to pray the Lord's Prayer like that? You want me to forgive my enemies? And you're not just telling me it's not enough that I don't go like, sleep with someone who I'm not married to, but actually I can't even lust in my heart. I read the Sermon on the Mountain, I go, I don't know if I could do any of that. But by faith, I believe Jesus is who he says he is, so I'm gonna start practicing these things. Not because I feel like it, not because I totally understand it, not because it sounds like the easiest and best way to live, but actually because Jesus said it, and I'm gonna trust if I choose by faith to take these actions every day and not just hear his word, and then wonder, hey, one day if I feel differently, I'll do what he says. But actually, I'm gonna say, Jesus, you are king. You are Lord. You are God. I'm gonna do your word. And trust that maybe over time, I'll begin to feel differently. Maybe my emotions will follow. I think our hearts follow our habits most of the time, actually. But we like to do it the other way. We want our habits to follow our hearts. So I've talked to very many people, no one here today, that has said, I didn't want to go to church because I wasn't feeling it, and I didn't want to seem like a hypocrite. Oh, by all means, that's why you should be here. If you're not feeling it, that is all the more reason you should come. And I'm not talking about legitimate reasons for not being here, but I mean the, the person that has 
uh, a long time ago said this. This was, this was before I was even in ministry. I would have friends in high school, and they were almost like they wanted to have, they wouldn't do anything spiritual unless they had such pure motivations for it. And I would just think to myself, you're never gonna do anything. If you're waiting for the motivation, if you're waiting, for, you're never gonna do anything, but if we just hear Jesus' words and we begin to be faithful to do them one foot after another because we know Jesus has said it and we know who he is. Is Jesus our highest authority? Are we willing to obey him because of our love for him and therefore really because of his love for us? It's First John, it's not that we love him, it's that he loves us. Are we willing to obey him because of our loving relationship? Do we believe that Jesus is worth building our life on? He is worth building our life on. He can be trusted. So will we receive him for who he is? Which is not just, though we emphasize this a lot, and we will never stop a kind friend who is gracious to you and meets you exactly where you are. He is also the king in all authority that's inviting us to obey him. Each of these three sections ends with what happens to the people that choose one way over another. We see in the first section about destruction. We see in the second section where Jesus says, I never knew you. And we see in the last section where the house that's built on sand falls I think in one sense, these uh, verses at the end of the Sermon on the Mount are meant to be a warning. They are an invitation for us, but at the same time, it's a warning. It's a warning about what will happen if you don't heed these words. It's a warning about the consequences for rejecting Jesus. If you never submit yourself to Jesus, if you never receive him by faith, then you will experience the destruction that Jesus talks about. You will experience the separation from him that he talks about. The Bible's very clear on that. And so I, I don't think I could have ended this sermon without at least extending that warning coupled with the invitation, but it doesn't have to be that way for you. Jesus is not pronouncing a, a judgment on your life that, hey, you're too far gone. He's saying the invitation stands, follow me. Follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me. It's not gonna be easy. It's really about intimacy with me and I'm inviting you to obey my words. So follow me. Now, if you don't, your life will not end well you will get the natural consequence of you chose a life without me and I will give you an eternity without me. And so this morning, that invitation is for us. We must devote ourselves to the way of Jesus. You are invited this morning to devote yourself to the way of Jesus. It won't be easy. And some of you know that far better than I do through the things that you've lived, the challenges, the suffering, the persecution, the hardship, the emotional, mental battles that you've lived through, you know better than me that it will not be easy when you follow Jesus. And maybe you don't know that. Maybe you hesitate to even believe that this morning. And I'm just asking, would you open yourselves to that truth this morning? It won't be easy. 
this is Christ's invitation to us. And so I want to pray for us, and we're going to move to the Lord's table in just a minute. But as I pray, I want that warning to be a reality for us. That this morning, if you're on the wide way, Jesus is extending to you the grace of an invitation, inviting you to the narrow way that leads to life. Don't follow the way that seems right to you because its end is death. Turn and follow the way of Jesus because its end is life. And if this morning is your time to join the narrow path, please tell Jesus in prayer that you need him to forgive you, to give you new life, and that you want an intimate relationship with him forever. And you could pray that right as I pray right now. And if you'd like to talk to me or um, Emery or Lynn or Justin, any of our elders or, or, or Ann or Carrie, and you want to say, hey, I, I need some help. Like, how do I say that? What do I do? But I'm, I'm on the wide way and I don't want to be. I want to be on the narrow way. We would love to talk to you about how to find life in Jesus. Let me pray for us this morning. God, we love you and we are thankful for you. Jesus, you are King of kings and Lord of lords, and we're thankful that the one with all authority is also the one with infinite grace <laughs> because one without the other is sad, hopeless, and scary. But Jesus, you pour out your infinite grace on us. You invite us to follow you. You don't just leave us to wander. You give us a way to follow, and we're thankful for that. Give us strength when the way is difficult drive us to intimacy with you when we're tempted towards managing our external appearances and trying to manage the fruit rather than taking care of the root of our lives. And I pray, I pray, I pray that you would help us by your Holy Spirit in us to obey you. And anyone here this morning who needs to take the first step on the narrow way, Father, I pray that you'd give them the courage and boldness to do that. I pray that you'd awaken their hearts Give them new life this morning. Give them faith. And I pray that we'd get to celebrate and walk with them as they experience a new loving relationship with you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray.